0: This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad in it. So glad that you are here. Hope you're well. If you've joined us online, welcome to you. We're thrilled you've joined us. Welcome. Glad to have you. We're in a series called This I Believe, the basics of the, of the faith, the, the foundations of what it means to be a Christian person in the world. And today we're going to talk about the subject of love and forgiveness, which is a relevant subject to every person who is alive because we've all been wounded we've all been offended we all have reason to forgive and be forgiven so it's a relevant topic for us and we're going to get into that and I hope it's meaningful to you we've been beginning each of these messages during the series with the reciting of an historic confession of the Christian faith it's the apostles creed It's about 1,700 years old, and all the traditions and families within the Christian community around the world uh, embrace the components of this creed, and so we stand with all of those who believe in Christ around the world in this confession. So as you're able, would you please stand so that we can recite the creed, and then I'll read our text today from the book of Acts. Are you ready? Together? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now if you'll remain standing for today's text, the book of Acts chapter 6, I want to read one verse from this chapter, verse 5. This is a setting where the original apostles now realize the need to care for widows who were now believers in the church and they needed to be cared for fed and such and so they would devote themselves to the teaching of the word and they would recruit others to take care of these more practical matters of caring for the poor and for the widows and so verse 5 says this proposal pleased the whole group and they chose stephen now note the characteristics here of stephen a man full of faith and of the holy spirit And also, uh, six other guys that they picked to work this. Their names are listed. (laughs) Now, members of the ruling class of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, now, sometime later, has uh, questioned these new believers in Christ and wondering what they're up to. And Stephen, now, who's been appointed to do these practical matters among the widows, He stands up and he addresses the Sanhedrin, and his concluding remarks included the verses just ahead of what I'm about to read. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors didn't persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was given through angels, but you have not obeyed it. Well, that was provocative. And so this is their response, verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And may God inspire and instruct us through his word today. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Let me ask you a question today. If you observed a person, observed a person in their most immediate and desperate crisis of their lives, the worst possible circumstances, the, the highest level of stress, the, 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 the most Uh, incomprehensible pressure points. If you observed a person under those circumstances, how would you know if that person was filled with the Holy Spirit? How would you know? I'm not talking about some moment of casual hardship, but rather the most demanding crisis. How would you know that they were full of God? Stephen is described here In the book of Acts, as a man who was full of the Holy Spirit, that's how he's described. He's characterized that way, a man of faith and and of the Holy Spirit. It's a remarkable characterization. Let me say something about people who have the hand of God upon them, you know, a special grace is on their life. and In fact, God puts his hand on all of us in special ways. And so we understand this. Some people describe this as an anointing, you know, a special grace, a special capacity or favor, giftedness, that sort of thing that, that uh, influences people around them. And let me just say from some experience that this kind of grace, when God's hand lands on a person in a unique and special way, or not unique, but special, you know, just extra special, this favor. This grace always, listen to me, always produces results. It always moves people. Now, having said that, sometimes this kind of grace will produce wonderful redemptive things, like people will come to faith in Christ. Sometimes they'll be inspired to do ministry or serve, influence others. Sometimes this kind of grace will make other people want to kill you. Over the years, I've had numbers of occasions when usually younger people will come up to me and say, "Uh, Pastor Greg, whatever it is that God has put on you, I want you to pray for me that the same kind of blessing, some kind of grace, special favor will come on my life. Anytime someone asks me to do that, pray for me. I always have two responses to that. One is, you know, that's that's impressive, you know that's good that's that's encouraging you know next generation leaders want to be influential. The other thought I always have is you have no idea what you're asking for, no idea at all. Sometimes a special gift of God because it always produces results, produces wonderfully redemptive things for example you can you can have a gift to communicate, teach or preach something like that, and you can fill a church or You can empty a church. Both are possible because this kind of grace always produces one way or the other. So, what we find in verse 57 from chapter 7 is they all rushed in agreement. All these Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, they rushed at Stephen. And the only other place, the only other place in the book of Acts where we see the same phrase, Uh, in agreement was on the day of Pentecost when 120 men and women are in an upper room in agreement, one mind, one accord, one heart, anticipating the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and so they're in agreement. The same Greek phrase from the original language is used in this text as well, that all of these folks, now the Sanhedrin and others, they're in agreement, not for a baptism in the Holy Spirit, not a baptism of love, but a baptism of evil. A murderous spirit brings them into agreement. Both of these kind of responses are possible as a result of the work of God in a person's life. One unlocks holiness, another might unlock wickedness. One brings a cord and brings blessing, the other, in accord, brings evil. Let me make this statement. See if you agree with this. The conspiracy of spiritual wickedness is always in the guise of religion. Now, I say always. I could could mitigate that a bit and say almost always. When there is spiritual wickedness as a motivation for action, it's almost always in the guise of or under the covering of religion. This past Friday, just two days ago, the leader of Hamas, a terrorist organization, as you know, in the Gaza Strip, declared a global day of rage. Friday will be a global day of rage, urging Muslims all over the world to protect, protest rather, and join the battle against Israel. And of course, we had protests all over the world in the major cities in the United States and elsewhere, people with, with rage in their heart, anger, hatred in their heart against Israel and against Jewish people. It's fascinating to me. The word Hamas, by the way, the name of this terrorist organization, comes from a Hebrew word. We actually know the meaning of the word Hamas. We can translate it into English. Why these folks would choose this name, you can discern for yourself. But the word Hamas, a Hebrew word that actually appears two or three times in the Old Testament, the word Hamas, not related to the organization today, but that word, the word Hamas we know translated literally means confusion and destruction. So here's an organization that calls themselves confusion and destruction. Not necessarily the title I would pick. We also know that Palestine, you know, we have Palestinians and, and, and all of this very highly complex political and social, religious complexity about it, trying to sort, sort this out to bring peace in that region of the world. The word Palestine actually comes from the Romans. The Romans named uh, this particular group of people many centuries ago, and it literally translates from the Old Testament, Philistines so philistines becomes palestines palestine palestinians and so when you read in the old testament philistines and israel had constant conflict with the philistine tribal peoples and to this day let me just remind you that in romans chapter 12 verse 3 it says relating to a covenant that god made to abraham when god called abraham and said i'm going to make of you a great nation He said to Abraham and made covenant with Abraham, whoever blesses you will be blessed and whoever curses you and your descendants will be cursed. That's the covenant God made to Abraham and his descendants. We also know that Isaiah came along later in history and prophesied with regard to Israel and the nation, the Jewish people in the world. He said that no weapon formed against you will prosper. We have, we have lots of people who hate Israel, hate Jewish people, and, and as I mentioned last week, reasonable people will disagree about the the relative importance of the, the contemporary nation of Israel, whether or not it has direct roots and connection to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, or whether it's it's not related to that at all. And as I say, reasonable people disagree about that. I happen to believe that the current nation of Israel is connected directly to the covenant God made to Abraham. These are the descendants of Abraham and in precisely the land that God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give to that nation. And so I have no reason to doubt that current Israel today is still under the covenant of Abraham. A word to the wise is if if you bless Israel, bless the descendants of Abraham, you will be blessed. If you try to hurt them, you'll be cursed. Curse them and you'll be cursed. No weapon formed against them will prosper. If you believe in the prophecies of the Bible, we know that one day the nations of the earth will surround Israel and attempt to destroy it. Everybody will hate Israel. Everybody will be against Israel. Let's wipe Israel from the face of the earth. That's the design right now and the stated goals. And the Bible predicts that there's going to be a great battle one day In the Valley of Megiddo, it's called Armageddon. And the whole purpose is to destroy Israel. And even then, it won't be accomplished because Jesus himself is going to intervene in that battle and protect Israel. So if you you have an inclination to hate Israel or try to advocate for some other faction that hates Israel, you do that at your own risk. That's my position. Of course, if you disagree with me, that's fine. Everyone has a right to be wrong. (laughs) Now, back to our original question. You know, open-minded, open-heart, all that. (laughs) Tolerant. Back to our original question. How can we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that someone in the most desperate moment of their lives is filled with the Holy Spirit? Well... Here is Stephen. Now, he's being stoned to death, a a, a gruesome death that you can't even comprehend. I mean, he's being pummeled with with stones, heavy stones. And the last words of this man before he he loses consciousness and, and, and is dead is, Lord, do not hold this sin against them." Does that remind you of any other statement that you've heard in religious history? How about when Jesus hung on the cross and said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So, at the moment of greatest crisis, Stephen looked more like Jesus than he did at any other point in his life. Pretty impressive. A college professor was a little aged and near retirement and a little shaky, and he had a glass of water sitting on his podium, his lectern. And as he was lecturing, he reached for his glass of water, and with the shakiness of his hand, he knocked the glass over and it spilled. And all of these students, of course, thought that was funny, so they laughed and, and uh, found it fun uh, to mock their elderly professor. The professor, though, he was wise and willy, if you will, and so he, uh, he, he simply looked up in the midst of all this laughter and asked a question. He said, why did the glass spill water? And, of course, that made them laugh even more because it was a silly question. Everybody knows the reason it spilled water is because you knocked it over. So one of the guy's students raised his hand. He said, it spilled water because you knocked it over. And the professor said, no, no, that's not what happened. He said, it spilled water because that's what the glass was full of. And then he said to his students, remember, class, you always spill what you're full of when you get bumped. Now, if you have a queasy feeling in your stomach right now because you're reminiscing about a moment that you've had recently when you got bumped and what spilled out of you is a bit disconcerting to you, this sermon is for you. Because we all can relate to that moment, can't we? A bad reaction, we get offended, we get hurt, we get wounded, and the reaction out of that? When we we get bumped, what's inside of us is what spills out. In this episode of the stoning of Stephen, we know that garments, garments of those who were in the text described as witnesses, we might as well call them co-conspirators or murderers, these guys who are stoning Stephen, they take their cloaks off, you know, I guess, you know, for a freer arm, and and they laid these garments at the feet of a young man named Saul of Tarsus. Here, watch these for us until we get done. And so Saul of Tarsus is there. And if you are a student of the Bible, you know that Saul of Tarsus eventually became a Christian and God transformed him into the great apostle Paul, who just by volume wrote three-fifths of the New Testament, the most brilliant theological mind in history. And so here's the great Apostle Paul. By the way, we are all descendants, spiritual descendants of the Apostle Paul because it was the Apostle Paul who took the gospel first to the Gentile world. And here we are, followers of Jesus because of his work. And so we know this guy and we admire him. And so Saul of Tarsus, who was a vigorous Jew, uh, an Orthodox Jew, a legalist, and could quote his quote his uh, credentials and offer his resume in such, in such cases, and was a chief persecutor of the Jews. And we know that one day this Saul of Tarsus was going along the road toward Damascus, and God knocked him to the ground and blinded him and asked, asked uh, with a voice from heaven, why are you persecuting me? And so Saul of Tarsus ends up in the house in Damascus, in the house of a man named Simon the Tanner on a street called Straight. And God speaks to a man named Ananias and says, I want you to go pray for this man, Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias obeys this command, and he goes to this house, and he puts his hands on Saul of Tarsus. His, the scales fall off his eyes. He's been blinded, and he receives a call of ministry. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Bible says that from that day forward, he began to preach the gospel. And so when we look at the Apostle Paul and his conversion, we recite that, that event on the road to Damascus, and that was was his conversion. And you can reasonably assume that that was the major part of it. But I want to submit to you today that the moment that first got the Apostle Paul's attention is when he was a young man, Saul of Tarsus, and he watched a man filled with faith and the Holy Spirit named Stephen, and he watched him die. And in the greatest crisis moment of that man's life, he heard that man say, forgive everybody here. I forgive them. Please, Jesus, forgive them. And I believe it, it was like an arrow that went into the heart of Saul of Tarsus. He never forgot that. So when the moment came when Jesus actually confronts him about his own faith and his own ministry, the Apostle Paul said yes. Yes. And so we have confirmation of the words we find in Acts 6. Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. I'm convinced that this is such an important issue that significant barriers of the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of God in the world could be reduced and removed if we would just exercise more intentionally this grace of forgiveness. It's a very powerful thing. I want to give you three thoughts today, practical thoughts about this subject that I hope you can apply to your life. Here's the first thing. We are commanded to forgive. The disciples asked Jesus one day, please teach us how to pray. Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a great prayer. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Up there, down here. It's a great phrase. Pray, Just pray this, up there, down here. Lord, whatever's happening up there, down here. Whatever's going up there, make it down, happening down here. It's a great prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and then these phrases. Forgive me of my trespasses, debts, sins, as we forgive those who trespass sin against us. Forgive me of my sins as I forgive others of their sins against me. Do you see the qualifiers there? This is very significant. This is very substantial. It's very important the flowing river of the Holy Spirit in our lives can easily be stopped up or dammed up or restricted by our our willingness or our failure to forgive. God says it explicitly to us then, if you refuse to forgive others, I will not be able to forgive you. It's like the, it's like the forgiveness bridge is out. If you refuse to forgive someone else, God now has no access to forgive you. And we underestimate the significance and the consequences of these decisions. In Matthew chapter 18, we have a parable of a man who has borrowed money from his boss. Now, to put this in modern terms, the guy uh, borrows $500 from his boss and he can't repay it. So he goes into his boss's office I can't repay this. Please forgive me the debt. And the boss is very generous. He says, Look, no problem. I'll forgive you the debt. He tears up the IOU. It's just like you never borrowed the money. Go and be blessed. Well, the man who's been forgiven of 500 bucks, he goes out into the, into the parking lot to leave and he sees another guy, a coworker there, and this guy owes him 50 bucks. And so the guy who's just been forgiven goes over to, the, to his friend and says, where's my 50 bucks? And the friend says, I don't have it. I can't give it to you right now. And so the man hits him in the face and knocks him to the ground and starts threatening, him, I'm gonna burn your house down. I'm gonna hire a lawyer. I'm gonna sue you. I'm gonna get my 50 bucks. And when the boss Finds out about what this guy did, the boss calls him back into the office and says, "Look, I'm putting a lien against your pickup truck until you pay back the 500 bucks." You refuse to pay to forgive someone of so little when I forgave you for so much. Yeah, you understand the point. So, unforgiveness is the one sin that can stop every promise of the Lord's prayer, and it's simple and it's powerful. It's underestimated. Years ago, I was in a little prayer meeting in my hometown group of about a dozen people there. There was a friend of a friend who was there from out of town and he had a special grace on his life. Uh, We had heard stories about the way God used him and apparently this man prayed for people who were sick and oftentimes they would recover. uh, The gifts of healing. And this is a legitimate gift of the Holy Spirit. And so this man is in this little prayer room and I was just a teenager and I was there and he was praying for us. And there was a woman in the room maybe in her late 40s, and she had chronic health conditions. Uh, She listed them. He said, may I pray for you? And she said, yes, please pray for me. I have this, this, and the other thing wrong with me. And then as he began to pray for her, he not only was exercising gifts that God had given him healing, but he also had other special knowledge gifts, uh, like a word of knowledge or wisdom and so, as this man was praying for this woman, and again, I was just three feet away from this. I was a teenager. I was, I was in the school of the Holy Spirit at the time. Just, I was just paying attention to all these things. And this man stopped praying, and he looked at this woman, and he said, God has just spoken to me. He said, I could be wrong about this, but this is just the impression I get. Uh, but here's what I think God wants me to say to you. And God, the Holy Spirit has said to you that if you, unless you forgive your sister, you'll never be healed. Now that's a pretty bold thing to say to someone you don't know, you've never met before, and you have you have no way of knowing any of these details unless God actually told you. Well, as it turns out, He was spot on in this woman's life. And again, I was three feet away, and this woman looked at him, and her countenance changed. And this is what she said: "It was just like yesterday for, for me. I can, I can, here's, and this is a quote. She looked at this man, and she said." you don't know what my sister has done to me. I could never forgive her. The woman was dead in five years. I followed her story. I paid attention to her life. I'd ask my parents, how is she doing? She's not doing well. And she died in her early 50s. It's a very powerful thing. We pray, forgive me as I forgive my spouse, as I forgive my children, as I forgive my employer, as I forgive my pastor. Let's practice that right now if we can. If you'll just stop, <laughs> Lord, I forgive my pastor. Just say it quietly to yourself. This will be liberating. Lord, I forgive my pastor. As you know, he's pitiful, <laughs> he's sad. I forgive him. Now, don't you feel better? Is that helpful? Just keep doing that every day. It'll be good for you. An old man, I heard this story from a close friend of mine, so I I know it's true. An old man came to the altar of the church after a service one Sunday. His wife was with him, and he suffered with arthritis. And so his hands were all gnarled up and painful, you can understand. And the pastor knew the story of this older couple and he asked the wife, the pastor asked the wife, would you just put your hands on your husband's shoulders as we pray for his arthritis, that God would give him relief. And she carefully, tentatively kind of reached over and just put a couple of three fingers on one shoulder. And the pastor noticed that she was even reluctant to touch, to touch him. But he knew their story. And it was a very closed circle of people. And so the pastor looked at this woman and said you know the issue here today isn't whether or not your husband is going to go to hell for the adulterous affair he engaged in 30 years ago the real issue here today is whether or not you're going to hell for failing to forgive him and her head went down and she she then lifted her head and she looked at her husband Charlie now tears were forming and she said Charlie, the pastor's right, I'm sorry, I forgive you. How wrong of me to hold this grudge for so long. And now this man and his wife were in tears and hugging each other and kissing each other at the altar of the church. And after a few moments of this, they composed a little bit, and this man backed away from his wife, and he looked at his hands and he said, look, my fingers are straight. And he had been healed in the moment, in the moment where forgiveness was expressed. Look at this uh, statement on the screen. See if you agree. More people will be emotionally, relationally, spiritually, and physically healed by the power of forgiveness than by any other power. Could be. Think about it. Second thing I want to say just to remind us that unforgiveness is destructive. Unforgiveness will destroy us because we're not designed internally to to carry the weight and the load of judgment. Let Let that sink in for a minute. Judgment is so big, it's so huge, it's so massive, it's so heavy, it's so substantial that we're not designed to carry it. So your mind, your emotions, your psyche, your physical body, not designed to handle that kind of pressure. Judgment is not our job and judgment is not good for us when we try to practice it look at this statement on the screen unforgiveness makes you weak because it makes you subject to the weakness of another what if i what if i could provoke you to provoke you to do something you know to take revenge just really Get on your case. Have you ever heard yourself or someone else say, I I just couldn't help it. He made me so mad. He upset me so much. I couldn't help myself. So if I provoke you to sin, it is because my weaknesses, listen, my weaknesses are greater than your strengths. Think about it. I actually have control over you at the weakest point of my life because your strength cannot overcome my weakness. What is the one thing that defeats the devil in a moment when we are tempted to take action, to take revenge, to pass judgment on someone else? The only thing that can, that can intercept that is forgiveness. As I go through the world, I don't, I don't, I don't like to be overcome by anything that doesn't help me. It's the way I'm wired. I don't like to be taken advantage of. I don't like my chain to be yanked. And I don't like the idea of someone else's weakness overcoming my strength and putting me in bondage. Why in the world would I want someone else's weaknesses and, and their own pain and their own problems overcome me? Why, why would I want to give another person the power to ruin my life? make any sense to me. So how can I overcome the weakness of the person who's trying to hurt me? By overcoming their weakness with my strength. And my strength is in the form of forgiveness. I forgive you. Let's let you go. I'm not going to judge you for hurting me. I'm not going to do it. Look at the most extreme example of this. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor at the time that Jesus was crucified. He stood before for Pilate, and, and Pilate passed judgment on him. And he was accused of all these things, and he, Jesus never opened his mouth, the Bible says. And Pilate's frustrated by this. And in his final interview with Jesus, he's, uh, he's wondering about Jesus because he knows he can sentence him to death, and he's nervous, nervous about it. He, he keeps saying to the mob, look, I don't see anything wrong with him. I know you've accused him of a bunch of things, but I don't see it. So why do you want him dead? I have have no reason to pass judgment on this guy. seems like he's innocent to me. And in the meantime, Pilate's wife has had a nightmare about the whole thing. She comes to Pilate and says, you let that guy go because this isn't good. Something bad is happening here. So Pilate's all worked up about this. And finally, he's had enough. He's frustrated with Jesus, just there quiet. And he finally says to Jesus, hey, you better defend yourself. Don't you know I have the power to put you to death? Then and only then does Jesus speak. This is very interesting. Jesus then perks up and he looks at him and says, no, no, you don't have any power over me. You or no one else can put me to death. I am going to die in the next several hours, but not because of you. The reason I'm going to die is because I'm giving up my life. You and no one else can take it from me just so we understand each other. So here's Jesus standing with a crown of thorns pressed into his brow with blood running down his face. His back has been lacerated by the the blows of a whip and he's in shackles ready to be trotted off to be crucified and he's in total control of the whole moment. How is that possible? Because he's not allowing the weaknesses of all the people around him to overcome his strength. You can't take my life, I lay it down you're not in control of this moment i am in total control of this moment by sacrificing himself by forgiving by loving and forgiving do you can do you feel the power of that there's there's enormous power there friends if we'll practice this so let me put this statement on the screen the great paradox of Christian forgiveness is that as long as I stay in a forgiving mode, I am stronger than those who are pursuing to hurt me. Unforgiveness defeats us because it blocks the flow of the Holy Spirit in my life and makes me vulnerable spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally. And so unforgiveness is destructive. Last point. Now this is the take home. This is the practical part. Now this, I'm going to help you if you'll let me. Here's, here's the last point the grace to forgive. If we just calculate all the offenses, all the wounds, all of the injustices, just by the people represented in this room right now and watching online, just just the number of people here, and we counted it all up, it would be overwhelming. I mean, if we just added all the injustice that's happened to all of us in our lives, it would just be overwhelming because it happens to us all the time, all of us all the time. So here's what we know about forgiveness. Here's the first thing. Forgiveness is a matter of choice, not an emotion. Now, hear me on this. The feeling will follow the forgiveness, maybe, but you can't afford to wait until you feel forgiving. So I'm going to forgive that person as soon as I'm feeling it. Not likely to get there. You don't feel it. Forgiveness is an act of my will based on my own human need and the clear command of God. I know that it's what's best for me and I know that God has commanded me to forgive and so I choose as an act of my will, act of my volition, I choose to forgive. It's it's a choice, not an emotion. Now here's the second thing, very practical. God will do through us what we can't do through ourselves. Willfully giving God access to my heart now activates his grace in me to complete the forgiveness I am incapable of my own. So I invite the grace of God into this space because if we're honest, we know I can't do this. I can't bring myself to do it. It's too much. It's too hard. The evil perpetrated, the injustice, the words that were said to me, the abuse, that I, the abandonment, the pain that I've suffered is too much. I can't do it. Even if I choose to do it, I know I can't do it on my own. Good news. The human mechanism of choosing will allow the spiritual dynamic of access to begin to work. The grace of God is sufficient, that God can do in and through us infinitely more than we can do on our own. And so we invite God into that part of our lives. God, come into my heart, my mind, my emotions in this category. I need your grace. Let me say something to you about grace. There is nothing good in your life that ever happens to you or ever will happen through you. There is nothing good or redemptive or positive that ever happens to in any aspect of our lives ever that isn't an expression of God's grace. God's grace, God's favor, his unmerited favor, undeserved, unearned favor comes to us Someone asked me the other day, what is your favorite characteristic of God? What's what's the favorite part of God that, that you appreciate the most? I said, his grace. His grace. Everything good comes through his grace. And so not only will God give us the grace we need to find him and the grace we need to live for him and the grace we need to find each other in loving community, but God will give us the grace we need to forgive people who've wounded us. It's all about grace. And so trust in that. Now, here's the third point. Understand that forgiveness is a process. It does not mean you'll never think about it again. It does not mean that if you choose to forgive someone that you'll not feel the pain of it ever again. That's just not true because you will. It happens. But don't place yourself under that kind of burden. Well, I chose to forgive that, that person and now I keep feeling all this pain again. That's okay. Okay. That's normal because forgiveness is a process. The best analogy I've heard about this comes from a woman named Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom survived the Holocaust as a Jewish person living in Holland, then spent time in a concentration camp when she got out of the camp. She lived the rest of her life as a powerful witness for Christ. And she talks about forgiveness and the, the offense that she suffered during the Holocaust. And it was great. And she likened forgiveness to the moments in her childhood when she would go to the church on Sunday morning and they would let the children jump up and grab the rope to the bell in the, in the bell tower. And she would swing with all of her weight and just swing on the rope and make the bell sound to call people to worship. And it was a very powerful image. And she said they, they loved it. And it was so much fun to ring the bell and swing on this rope. And She'd come down and their feet would touch and she would jump back up in the, and you can see her just as a child. And then finally, she said the rector would say, now it's time to let go of the rope. Now let go of it. That's enough ringing of the bell. And she said she knew that when she let go of the rope, that the bell would continue to chime for a while. She said, just like letting go of a person's offense continues to impact your life from time to time. But she said, the longer you had your hands off of the rope, the lighter was the sound of the bell. Until finally, you couldn't hear the bell any longer. And she said, such it is with forgiveness, that when you make the choice to let go of the rope, the rope of judgment toward another person, and you let it go, the bell may continue to sound. You may continue to feel the emotions or think the thought. It's a process, but eventually the sound of the bell will subside until you no longer hear it. And along the way, this is what I can tell you from personal experience, the devil will say to you, do you still hear that bell? You've not forgiven anyone. You haven't forgiven that person. You still hear that. You still feel that, don't you? Why don't you just grab a hold of the rope and ring that thing? It'll make you feel better. Ring that bell. Pass pass judgment on that person. Take them out of that little cell that you hold them in captive and just, you know, pound on them for a while. That's what they deserve. Instead, the grace of God says to us let go of the rope, keep your hands off of it. And over time, the impulse will be less and less. Last thing is this. Remember the power of God to forgive is in you through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. This means you have the power to forgive whether someone requests it or not, whether, whether you're feeling it or not, whether they deserve it or not. And let me just make this last statement about forgiveness. Forgiveness does not fix everything. There are some relationships in your life that have been so, so broken, so damaged, the separation so severe that they're probably not gonna fix, not in this lifetime. And that's okay. Some relationships are broken and will not fix. Now, on the other hand, forgiveness. Maybe the restorative grace that that relationship needs and you, you go to a friend and you make amends and you confess your own faults and and you, and you rejoin that friendship and we've been close ever since we forgave each other and that's beautiful. Thank God. But forgiveness doesn't fix all the relationships. And that's okay. But the command to forgive is still in place, and the grace of God sufficient to help you forgive that person is active, and you can be at peace, even though you'll, you, you'll have to wait to eternity. Let's say both you and the person who offend you end up in heaven, and, you walk, and, you're, and you're face-to-face someday. Let Jesus sort that out, because there we'll know exactly how much responsibility you had in the, in, the, in the problem and how much the other person had, and Jesus will sort it out, and you can come to terms. Let heaven deal with it. Let eternity sort it. In the meantime, the mandate is to forgive and to trust God with the rest. Did you get it? Are you hearing this? So let's do it. What do you say? Would you bow your heads with me? Let's practice just for a moment. You know we have to do this. some of you've been so offended, so damaged, so wounded. I mean, if you told your story today, we would some of us would be sickened by it. You've been so hurt. And now some preachers asking you to forgive that person. I know it's hard. But here's how it goes. Remember, forgiveness is a matter of choice. Do you have that person in in front of you now? Do you have her right in front of you? That guy, that, that woman? You don't have to feel forgiving. You just have to decide, I'm going to choose to forgive that person today. Start the process to forgive today, right here, right now. I forgive that person. And then remember, God will do through us what we can't do for ourselves. His grace will begin to work to complete the forgiveness that I'm sure I can't manage on my own. So God, help us. Help help me to forgive. Give me the grace I need. So today, Lord, we let go of the rope We relinquish the right to pass judgment on that person, the right to hate them, to be filled with rage or resentment, hatred. We let go of the rope. Just let it go. And Lord, we trust that in time, we'll have more and more peace about this. And finally, Lord, we look to your Holy Spirit as the means we need in the process of forgiveness. And we thank you, O God, that by your grace, we can experience this amazing redemptive work. So forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, would you stand with us?